Would you take your scriptures and turn with me to Psalm 92? Psalm 92, we'll be reading the entire Psalm. Psalm 92, would you give ear to the reading of God's Word? It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness every night on an in- instrument of ten strings, on the lute with harmonious sound. For you, Lord, have made me glad through your work. I will triumph in the work of your works of your hands. O Lord, how great are your works! Your thoughts are very deep. A senseless man does not know, nor does a fool understand this. When the wicked spring up like grass, and when all the workers of iniquity flourish, it is that they may be destroyed forever. But you, Lord, are up high forevermore. For behold your enemies, O Lord, for behold your enemies will perish. All the workers of iniquity will be scattered. But my horn you have exalted like a wild ox. I have been appointed with fresh oil. My eyes also have been my desire on my enemies. My ears hear my desire on the wicked who rise up against me. The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bear fruit in old age. They shall bear, be fresh and flourishing. To declare that the Lord is upright, he is my rock, there is no unrighteousness in him. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We come because we know you are the sovereign Lord Almighty. You're the one who has given us your word to lead us through the struggles of life. For your word is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the souls and spirit and of joints and marrow. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Please, Lord, open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to understand all the truth that you reveal to us through your word. In Christ's name, amen. This psalm is called in the Hebrew title, A Psalm, A Song for the Sabbath. It was to be sung on the Sabbath. John Calvin said, There's no reason to doubt that the Jews were in the habit of singing this psalm upon the Sabbath day. The authorship of this psalm is not known. Some say Adam wrote it, which is a very far-fetched idea. Some that Moses penned it, still others assign it to various other people. The most probable answer to its author has to be David. The writing is very similar to David, but we can't say for sure who wrote it. Nor can we say it was written to relate to any historical event. We can only take its title as true, that it was written as a song to be sung on the Sabbath. There are three names of God in this song. The first is Jehovah the Lord. We looked at these names last week, so let us, let's do a quick review. First name here is Jehovah the Lord. The Hebrew people saw this name as the greatest name for God. He is the God who exists because he exists. I am that I am. He is God in covenant relations with his own people. As his people, we stand in the promises of Jehovah. The second name is Elyon the Most High. We saw last week that he is the possessor of heaven and earth. 
The thought of this name is that he, Elion, owns everything. We serve Elion, the God who possesses everything. The last name is Elohim, the creator God, my God. We talked about this name always being in the plural because God is the triune God, one God, three persons. This shows that he is a God of power. The scope of this psalm is clear. It is a song that brings praise. It brings praise for the works of God, most specifically the works of creation, providence, and redemption. However, it is providence that is the center of its message. John Gill was an English Baptist pastor in the early 18th century who preached Charles, preceded Charles Spurgeon at Metropolitan Tabernacle. He said of this psalm, it was made for the Sabbath to direct the work and worship of God. Joseph A. Alexander, an esteemed professor in the 1800s at Princeton Seminary, said of this psalm, The immediate subject of the praise is the exhibition of God's power and wisdom in his providential dealings, both with the wicked and the righteous. Let's look at this psalm and gather its wisdom on our Sabbath day. First, we will see we are to praise God. Second, we will learn of his great works. Third, we will hear of our great Lord. Fourth, we will join in the believer's rejoicing. Fifth, we consider the believer's life. This is how we get a picture of that eternal Sabbath that we will live in when we arrive in heaven. We hear in this psalm a call to praise the Lord and to encourage others to do the same. Verse 1, it is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High. Thanksgiving is the duty and must be the delight of every Christian. If it is the believer's duty as the least thing they can do to return something to our Lord Jehovah, it must be our pleasure, for it is so with the angels, and it will be so of every grateful heart. Your day should open this with praise. Verse 2, to declare your loving kindness in the Lord and your faithfulness every night. There can be no better issue to open the day with than loving kindness. I couldn't think of anything that would have been better. We should open our day promptly and with eagerness praising our God. Should we not awake from the slumber of sleep and its darkness to express our delight that a new day of life and light has been given us? He also says we should also have faithfulness every night. Before you retire, should you not open your mouth and praise God for the day he just gave you and praise him for the night of rest coming. In these times, when we look to, to and remember the mercy of our God, we see the promise of our salvation. We see Jehovah's faithfulness in making our forgiveness sure. He made it so sure that we see his works as infinite issues of our praises every day. Here. He also gives more instructions about our worship. Verse 3. On an instrument of ten strings and the lute with harmonious sound. We should use every instrument at our disposal, every tune we know, and every strength we have to lift our praise to him night and day. While this should be our practice every day, it should be elevated on the Sabbath as we gather collectively to worship and praise the Lord Jehovah. Those who are redeemed and given the new heart and spirit and indwelt by the Holy Spirit will be around the throne in heaven praising their God and their deliverer. 
Doesn't that sound like a wonderful thing to be doing? One note on this. Principles on the use of music in worship are laid out here. Choirs and collections of musical instruments are acknowledged. Their purpose is always to be aids to worship, not entertainment of people, nor the presentation of talent. When it deviates from being an aid to worship, it becomes sinful. Charles Spurgeon said, and very aptly, I think, fine music without devotion is but a splendid garment upon a corpse. So I would say this misuse of music kills worship and harms those who come to worship. To observe the creation in the spring of the year, even as fallen as it is, can truly fill the mind and heart with awe at its beauty. Verse 4, for you, Lord, have made me glad through your work. I will triumph in the works of your hands. As you are awed by God's creation, you are even more overcome as a believer when you hold, behold the works of God's hands. The works that have by the hand of Jesus Christ made all things anew. If it is possible that we can be pleased with a world that is filled with sin and death, how much more will our joy be as we enter heaven where sin cannot come and death is forever banned? Is it not much like we see the palace and have a hard time seeing all its glory when the dungeon we're trapped in is not without its beauties? Beauties. In this fallen world, we can see the glorious hand of our God, but we see it through the veil of flesh. Yet, I cannot stop praising my God. I must go on, and I will rejoice. The first sentence of this verse, For you, Lord, have made me glad through your work. This reveals the unity of the works of God. The second sentence, I will triumph in the works of your hands, shows the variety of his works. When God opens a man's heart to his word and works in this heart, he makes that man very happy and glad, and he is filled with the desire to continually praise his Lord. What a great expression we hear of the great works of our Lord in verse 5. O oh Lord, how great are your works. Your thoughts are, his, are very deep. Some suggest that the word great should be exchanged for a more expressive word. I don't see how any word could express this idea better than those used. God took nothing and from it made all the parts of the universe. Then he carefully put them all together to make what we see. We have powerful telescopes that can see well beyond the limits of our skies or our eyes. As we use them to see into space, we get the idea of how small and insignificant we are to the universe. We have microscopes that see things far too small for the eye to see. We look into the depths of our world and see creatures so small, living in groups and knowledgeable of their environment, showing the infinite perfection in their creation. God's works are great and go beyond what we can even imagine. If we study providence, we, can find, we find ourselves equally amazed at God's plan and how we see that plan working out every day. When we stop and examine redemption, we can but wonder in awe as we adore its power in our lives. Does it not raise the amazement in, our, in your heart as you read Romans 9.33? Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. 
And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Can you even begin to imagine how a sinful man can receive God's grace? The psalm says of our Lord, your thoughts are very deep. They are so deep we can but scratch at their surface. Yet, by his grace, God has opened the hearts of his people to begin to understand that work in our hearts brings the praise from our hearts to our lips. The man without a new heart is without hope. Verse 6, a senseless man does not know, nor does a fool understand this. Every man is totally depraved as long as he is without a new heart and is not taught of God. The prophet Jeremiah knows this and told the people of the dangers they faced. He laid it out for them. Jeremiah 10, 8. But they are together full dull-hearted and foolish. A wooden idol is a worthless doctrine. A wooden idol can't do anything. It can't speak to you. It can't warm you up. It can't do anything for you. It's nothing. Jeremiah 51, 17. Everyone is dull-hearted without knowledge. Every metalsmith is put to shame by the carved image, for his molden image is falsehood, and there's no breath in them. What do good men want in their lives? Proverbs 3, 1 through 2. My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart Keep my commands for length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Good men will deeply lament their blindness and will seek discernment. On the other hand, wicked men see nothing as as it should be seen. The blind and sinful are a tragedy. And there's only one thing that can change that. Only one thing. Jesus Christ has to do his work in their hearts or they will be left to their own desires, and that will lead them straight to the pit of hell for eternity. Please, my friend, do not allow that to happen to you. Open your heart right now and call out to Jesus, and he will answer you and show you the way out of hell and the way to heaven. You can do this right where you sit. All it requires is faith, and faith is simply believing God And Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Please, please don't let this opportunity pass you by. The opportunity to know God and follow him. Can you not see what a great work we are given in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Our Lord is indeed great and man has nothing that can stand against him. Verse 7. When the wicked spring up like grass, and when all the workers of iniquity flourish, it is that they may be destroyed forever. In the first phrase of this verse, we hear of the wicked. When the wicked spring up like grass, many wicked are allied together. In strength and working quickly, they grow like flourishing plants coming to maturity in but a day. He goes on to say, and when all the workers of iniquity flourish, coming to full bloom in their plant prime, They will be filled with pride and it will build them up in pomp and it is that they may be destroyed forever. Spurgeon says, they grow to die, they blossom to be blasted. This is the fate of the wicked, of those who work evil to destroy the works of our great God. They live lives of prosperity for a short time and in the end wither and die. They die an eternal death in the pit of hell, being ever burned 
but never losing consciousness, remembering forever their wicked ways. What a terrible thought. Greatness and glory are not things they revel in. But we know little will their opposition matter, for our Lord reigns regardless of what they do. They can blaspheme him, but it does no harm. They can hail him to the, nail him to the cross, and he cannot change his plan. They can bury him, but no grave can hold our Lord. They can lie about it all, but no lie can stop him. The Most High, Elion, is the unaffected, is unaffected by these fleeting mortals who dare to stand in opposition to him. But we know what God's plan is. And we know that those who oppose him will in the end vanish away as a fog vanishes when the sun arises. We shall see their destruction forever. We will see the terror it will produce. Eyes not seen nor ear heard the weight of God's wrath that will settle on their heads. It is coming. It is coming and it will not be stopped. But take heart and look to your great Lord. Verse 8. But you, Lord, are high ever forevermore. Here you find the middle line of the song. This line shows what this song was to illustrate. What does it tell us? That our Lord is the highest and most enduring of all beings. Men rise to fall, but our God is the most high of all, for all time. Give praise and glory to his name. We worship a great God, Jehovah the Lord. We're the, are there any who would not fear him? The ungodly will be destroyed forever. The evil will all be cast away. And Elohim, the great creator God, our God, will reign for eternity. He is who we worship with special adoration each Sunday. Every Sunday we gather together here for the purpose of worshiping and glorifying God. For remembering what Christ has done for us. So we come every Sunday worshiping and, and looking at the incarnation, looking at his, his life, looking at his ministry, looking at his resurrection and crucifixion. All of those things each Sunday is what we worship. Now he gives us a warning. Verse 9. For behold your enemies, O Lord, for behold your enemies will perish. All the workers of iniquity will be scattered. This is really a great warning filled with instruction. We must open our eyes and see its truth. What is that truth? He says, your enemies will perish. These enemies will disappear into the bowels of hell and be seen no more. Here it is spoken and confirmed by the great Lord, by Jehovah, our covenant God. He promises that this will be done when the time comes and done in a quick way. He continues and says, all the workers of iniquity will be scattered. Their forces will be dispersed. Their hopes will be squashed and scattered to the four corners of the world. Scattered like a herd of antelopes being chased by a pride of lions. Spurgeon says, the grass cannot resist the scythe, but falls in withering ranks. Even so are the ungodly cut down and swept away in process of time while the Lord whom they despise sits unmoved upon the throne of his infinite domain. As terrible as this sounds, no man with a new heart would have it any other way. Treason against the king of kings cannot go unpunished, and we know it will not. 
The wicked will be cast into hell for eternity while our great Lord will sit enthroned in heaven forever as the focus of our worship. One of the greatest rewards of salvation is in Jesus Christ is that the believer can rejoice in all his God has done for him. Verse 10. But my horn, you have exalted like a wild ox. I have been anointed with fresh oil. Here we know the believer rejoices that he is delivered from death. He is given the strength to defeat his enemies by the grace of God. The wild ox is a symbol of great strength. The word in Hebrew is unicorn. This unicorn may have been some really large ox or buffalo that's extinct now and thus unknown to us. It seems to be a favorite of the ancients as a symbol of great strength or as Spurgeon says of unconquerable power. The word unicorn in some form or other is used nine times in the scripture. When faith is present in our hearts, we can take great pleasure in seeing the mercy of our Lord. In putting to song what God would do and what he has already done. He goes on to say, I have been anointed with fresh oil. To be strengthened means also to be refreshed and honored. As in the days of David, a guest at a feast would be anointed with a perfumed oil. They didn't have deodorants back then. So will the saints be refreshed and strengthened with a new anointing of God's grace? It is for this reason that they shall not pass away as the wicked. We come to this next verse to face a dilemma. Verse 11. My eyes also have seen my desire on my enemies. My ears hear my desire on the wicked who rise up against me. The words my desire are added by the translators in both places here. The ESV translates this this way. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. Many other translations give it a very similar translation. This psalmist does not say what he should see concerning his enemies. He does not mention his desire at all, and we have no right to add such. Their addition makes him look like he is being vindictive. Spurgeon says the psalmist saw God's glory as well as what God showed is eminently right and just. This good man is sure about what he has seen and heard. He knew what he heard would vindicate his faith in the Lord. He was very content to leave the fate of his enemies in God's hands. He knew there was no reason for him to place his desire in this. This believer trusted his Lord to handle the judgment of others justly. Therefore, he shows in these two verses his praise and the believer's rejoicing. The song now turns to show the believer's life. Verse 12, the righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. The picture of the man of God as a palm tree is very good. The palm tree grows under a dry and arid place, yet its roots sink deep into the ground to find water. It has one strong trunk that stands as a great column that bends with the wind but does not break. The palm, the palm is a long-lived tree. The man of God also grows under a dry and arid place because of sin. He also must have roots that go deep into the world, a word of God to find the water of life. 
This man has only one strong principle for life, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which promises him eternal life. He fights against the winds of evil, but does not give in to them. This man of God will stand fast and not be overthrown. He shall grow in the noblest of ways. The psalmist also says he shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Here is another great noble tree. This tree is long-lived also. This cedar tree grows tall and gives the picture of great strength and endurance. From this tree comes the wood that builds the temple. It pictures the man of God as he lives his life with hope and rejoicing. He then becomes the wood from which the spiritual temple of heaven will be built. Such men will be the heirs of heaven because of the strength and honor they have been given through God's grace. He shows the greatness of the believer. Verse 13, those who are planned in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. In the oriental homes in the days of David, they would plant trees in their courtyards and carefully tend them so they would produce fruit in seasons of prosperity and in times of affliction. Thus, believers are spoken of by the prophet Isaiah 61.3. They, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. The believers planted by living waters of comfort. They are planted in the courtyard of the Lord, where by grace they grow in hope. They're fenced, enclosed by the disciple, discipline of the church. They are given the favor and protection of heaven. The beauty of such trees stands out and is noticeable. It is ever constant, such that the fruit comes in the winter of prosperity, in the summer of prosperity, and in the winter of adversity. The actions and works of the believer are ever upright and just. Their leaves give off a delightful odor which comes from their holy example in conversation. George Horn sums this up. Their affections and desires are ever ascending toward the noblest and most sublime objects, the things that are above the glorious things of heaven. The righteous, those called saints, are lifted up. Verse 14. They shall still bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing. The man who grows in his understanding is a man that is happy and rejoices in his Lord. The righteous man is one that ever strengthens and continues to develop virtues in his life such that those virtues increase as he grows in years. This is the man that never loses because of worldly cares and pleasures. He grows by the love of his Lord, and he ever goes forward shining more each day to the end of his life on this earth. The church, like Sarah, Abraham's wife, grew old, but by God's grace was enabled to bear the child of promise, Isaac. We look at the church 2,000 years after Christ, who, like Sarah, through spricken in years, still brings forth fruit. Many may our churches today be able, by God's grace, to bring forth many children of promise, both from Jew and Gentile. What we learn here is that the last days of the saints can be the best days for them because it shows their best works. This is their testimony of right standing with God. 
You can see in this that perseverance is the best testimony of faithfulness. Verse 15, to declare that the Lord is upright, he is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. The psalmist says here to declare that the Lord is upright. What does that mean? It means he is true to his promises. It declares he is faithful to his every word. It shows the work he has begun will be finished. You must understand that it is by his promises that you will partake in his divine nature. So it is by his promises that you will be able to persevere. You will be given the grace that will cause you to be preserved in your faith. It is in the Lord and his uprightness that you can, as Psalm 18.25 says, and I'm reading from the NIV, to the faithful you show yourself faithful, to the blameless you show yourself blameless. The psalmist sounds his trumpet and shouts, He's my rock and there's no unrighteousness in him. Here the psalmist was building upon his God because he saw how firm a foundation the Lord was for his trust. God was also his shelter for defense, for indwelling, for foundation. Yes, God was his rock. From the beginning, he has been to us all what he always promised to be. Thus we can be very sure he will be so until the end. He has tried us in his furnace, but never beyond what we could stand. He has held our rewards, but he has never been unrighteous to forget our works of faith and labor of love. God has been our friend and never forsaken us. He, we are his, and whatever he does with his own is right. God is true and righteous together. Spurgeon said we need to weave the beginning of this psalm with the end to form a crown of glory. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, for he is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. This is why the psalm was written for the Sabbath. In conclusion, let me remember, let us remember all that, that this psalm promises. It promises this to be a song for the Sabbath. It calls us to praise the Lord on the first day. It lays out for us the great works of salvation. It tells us about the great Lord we serve and will spend eternity with. It promises us a time of great rejoicing because of the works of our Lord. It opens for us a view into the righteous man's life. The reason this psalm is set aside as a song for the Sabbath is because the Sabbath is the promise of God's rest. That's the goal of everyone who knows the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a rock. He's our rock. He is the Savior, the Redeemer, and the Lord who created all things. Come and place your hope and trust in Him and in Him alone. For He is the gate. The gate that leads to God's rest, which is an eternal rest and a place of eternal joy. Let us pray. Gracious Lord and creator of heaven and earth, we come before you this morning. We come asking you to vindicate us, O Lord, for we have walked in our integrity. We have also trusted in the Lord, who we shall not slip. Examine us, O Lord, and prove us. Try our minds and our hearts. For your loving kindness is before our eyes, and we have walked in your truth. We know our needs are great, and we are unable on our own to fill those needs. We ask you, 
to give us the understanding we need to be what you have called us to be. Grant us the strength and the courage to listen to you and follow your guidance. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.